Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your grace, for Your mercy, for Your Word. We ask that You would bless this uh, gathering of friends and disciples as we come now again to Your Word and open up to Acts chapter 3 and 4. We ask that You would um, draw us to Yourself, that You would uh, teach us about, uh, once again, about salvation, about uh, reconciliation with You, about uh, about what it is to proclaim Your Word in the world. We ask this, Lord, for Your glory and for the good of this church. In Christ's name, Amen. Amen. Alright, so um, we're in uh, Acts chapter 3, but first I wanted to say we, we started nearly a year ago uh, in Genesis chapter 1. We went all the way through the Old Testament. Uh, not every verse and chapter by any means, not even every book, but to try to get a, a, a sense of the breadth and the scope of uh, not only how... Um, wonderful uh, the different things, the different genres are, and the different stories are, but to see that it's actually not just a collection of stories, but it's actually one story. Right? It's a collection of it's a, it's a collection of stories that make up a meta-narrative, an overarching theme uh, about God's saving grace to fallen humanity. And one of the things that we really wanted to highlight, and I hope that we were able to see that through the course of the year, is that uh, the Old Testament God is not distinct or different from the New Testament God. We hear that a lot. Oh, I, I love the Old Testament God because, I mean, the, the, I love the New Testament God because He's a God of love, but the Old Testament God is a God of wrath. And that just, I don't know how to relate to that. Well, no, it, it is wrong to characterize the New Testament God uh, as a God of uh, love, but the Old Testament God as a God of wrath. Uh, there is... Of course, wrath in the Old Testament. Uh, but we also see incredible kindness and grace uh, from, the, from God throughout the, uh, the Old Testament. In fact, uh, the, uh, there's this refrain that comes through several, several times. I didn't count it, but um, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's all throughout the Old Testament. That's what they, that was their view. Uh, of God. Yes, He's a God of judgment. But also, in the New Testament, we see the full wrath of God poured out on one person who didn't do anything wrong. So it is important to see uh, that, that the whole breadth of the Old Testament and New Testament tells a single story about God's grace to fallen humanity. In Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I preached on that from Colossians uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, meaning, to look at Jesus is to look at the Father. I mean, we say in the Nicene Creed, uh, they are of one substance, being of one substance with the Father. Jesus is, uh, we, you know, Jesus said some um, amazing things about His relationship to the Father. I and the Father are one. I don't do anything apart from the will of of my Father. And yet, if you think about that, unless He is God, that is, uh, that would be a really terrible, those would be really terrible things to say. Like, you would say, I love God, I have a close relationship with God, but you would not say, I and the Father are one. Never heard any disciple of Jesus Christ say that. Um, the, uh, 
We like to think of Jesus as sort of loving and uh, loving the children, caring a lamb, but just the things that he says are crazy, terrible. Uh, your sins are forgiven. Who says that? Unless he has the authority to say that because he is, in fact, God. Remember in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said of old, and then it's like, do not murder, or do not commit adultery, or there's, several, I think, six things in the, uh, that he goes through in Matthew chapter 5. But I say to you, so he uh, either not contradicts, but he sort of steps in and reinterprets, sometimes ups the ante a little bit. Who has the authority to do that? Well, nobody, except for God. So Jesus says some incredible things to say that he, he's always rooted in the Old Testament. And what we see is that the cross is the consummation of salvation history. And it's there that the love of God intersects with the wrath of God, right? We have a hard time reconciling a God of love and a God of wrath, a God of judgment uh, and righteousness, and a God of grace and mercy. And it's there on the cross that those two things come together. Um, and what happens is that in God's great love for you and me, in His great love for humanity, He takes the full wrath of, himself, of God against Himself. As we've said before, He's more against him, uh, more for you than He is for Himself. So, um, and yet it is the resurrection that seals the deal. Isn't it? So this is all context for what we're going to talk about today. But just wanted, since we've been off for a while, I want to make sure we understand uh, where we are in the story. That the resurrection seals the deal, sort of vindicates the work of Jesus and turns the world upside down. And the book of Acts, where we are now, is essentially uh, God pushing the proclamation of salvation out into the world and its people coming to grips with the reality of the resurrection. If Jesus had died on a cross, people would be upset about that, but life would have gone on. But it was the resurrection that really turned the world upside down. And the Holy Spirit is pushing this proclamation out. That's what the book of Acts is. In fulfillment of what we looked at in Genesis, where God promised Abraham that through his line all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Right? So, Acts is the testimony. We'll see it today. That there is salvation in no one else. For no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Everyone, could we give Matt Skaggs a round of applause? Well done, young man. You're doing a great job. You're doing a great job. All right. So we have two passages. We're going to spend most of our time uh, in Acts 3 and 4. We're not going to talk too much about the martyrdom of Stephen, although it's a really compelling, really uh, interesting and, and horrible, wonderful story. But we have two passages of great faith and great persecution. And I think actually in the, in the context of, of Acts, in the context of Scripture, it's remarkable that these two events get so much real estate in Scripture. I mean, Paul's whole visit, year and a half visit to Corinth, of which came out of that two massive letters, that whole visit doesn't get the real estate that these you know, 48 hours uh, get in Acts. And so Acts 3 and 4, if you've read uh, ahead, Acts 3 and 4 uh, begin as 
Peter and John and some of the other disciples are heading to the temple to worship. And a pretty ordinary, uh, regular sort of event happens when um, a man who is lame from birth, he's uh, a beggar, asks them for alms. Just like you might expect. Somebody, if you're headed to the cathedral downtown, somebody on your way in might stop you and ask if you have a couple bucks. And Peter looks at him. It's a really um, descriptive little sentence. He looks at him and, and calls the man, look at me. The man looks at him, expecting to get money. And he says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. I, I've never been in that spiritual place where I felt like I could say that to someone. You know, like I, I have prayed for healing many times. I've never told anyone, get up out of your hospital bed, we're going home. Like that is... Um, I don't know what that feels like. I don't know what sense of the Spirit. I don't know if Peter made a decision or if the Holy Spirit just took over his tongue. I don't really understand how what that looks like. I'm so glad it did happen, uh, but I've, I've not seen something quite like that. I've seen people healed miraculously, but I've never seen anyone command someone to stand up. I will say there was one time early on, like, I mean, I was in seminary, I think. It was the first person that I'd ever really walked through, and she ended up dying. I never, I'd never, never walked with her through her illness uh, to death before, um, and I never walked with anyone like that. And, um, and I can remember recalling this passage in seminary and thinking it and, like, wanting to say it, wanting to say, silver and gold I do not have, but this I command, I have, what I have I give to you. In, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. I couldn't make myself do it. I, I, I was, I mean, call it a lack of faith, call it a, um, uh, call it uh, wisdom, I, I don't know. But, but it was, um, I was afraid to say that. Now, was that the Holy Spirit moving in me and she would have been, she'd still be with us today? I don't know. I don't know. But I, I know that this, that I don't really know this the spiritual state that says I'm prepared to tell someone who has been lame from birth to stand up and walk and to face the kind of ridicule that would come or the, the sort of laughter at, um, and scorn that would come if, if you said that and he didn't stand up and walk. That's the way my mind works anyway. But yet, what happens? I mean, we also see that people were just clamoring to get their sick relative in Peter's shadow. As he walked by, so I mean, there was there. There's another thing going on. This is a special time in the life of, of Christian history. Um, I'm not saying again. I'm not saying that things. Don't, I, I bet there are plenty of preachers that could tell you um, stories like that. But I've not experienced it. Anyway, he tells him the man gets up. Everybody is amazed. They see it happen. They've known this guy. They've come to worship. They've come to the temple. He's asked them for money. All the people. He, they know this guy. He stands up. He's walking. He's jumping. He's so excited, and everybody. Is, and, and so Peter gets up and preaches. This is the second, the second sermon he's preached since. Um, remember the sermon at Pentecost. Three thousand people came to faith, and he has this this formula, and he's going to use it again the next day. You killed him. God raised him. That's sort of. That's essentially, in a nutshell, that's Peter's. Uh, speech. You killed him. God raised him. 
And then what, um, what we say, he says, but I know you acted in ignorance. In other words, I know that you didn't know what you were doing, but now you see, and I'm calling you to repent and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. And so what I think is one thing just to really note and to, and to realize how remarkable it is, is that even at this early stage, I mean, this is probably, I don't know, and this, this, is, this could be somewhere six months after the resurrection, it could be two years after, after the resurrection. Uh, we're not told exactly what the time frame is. But what we see is that even here at this early stage, there was a palpable sense, a, a theological sense in which the cross and the resurrection of Jesus accounted for the sins of those uh, regular people. And there was a recon- reconciling nature. Jesus talked about this, but they, it was the Holy Spirit working in them uh, to pull together, uh, for instance, Isaiah's suffering servant and Isaiah's victorious king into the same person. They, they had always thought those would be two different people. And now we see them both in Jesus. And, the, and then Jesus' own teaching comes together in the Holy Spirit. And they realize the death of Jesus. So Paul is not the first one to talk about this you know, 20 years later. Um, just within a couple of years, Peter is saying, repent that your sins may be blotted out. The whole problem of the Old Testament, how can unholy people have a relationship with holy God? Already they were saying that this is solved in Jesus Christ. And then Peter roots Jesus in the Old Testament. That's actually, he just goes through the E100 right, right there uh, in that speech. And, and he says that, for instance, Moses prayed for a prophet like him to be raised up. Uh, the prophets, all from Samuel on, uh, were looking to this day, this moment, the Abrahamic covenant, in your offspring all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the crowd, even though he's saying, you killed him, God raised him, but he's inviting them to, re- to repent and to re- give their hearts to the Lord, to receive the Holy Spirit, to understand the death of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And the Sadducees who were the ruling party and who were um, essentially uh, humanists, did not believe in in resurrection. They get kind of hot and bothered about it. And they arrest Peter and John. And Peter and John, uh, are it's late, so they just stay overnight. There's no big deal with the prison in in that uh, instance. They, They get up the next day and the Sadducees, interestingly, they were arrested because they were talking about the resurrection. Their question on uh, the next morning is, by what power did you heal this man? Well, what does Peter appeal to? He appeals to the resurrection, which they didn't love, obviously. It's interesting, too. Do you remember where um, in Luke chapter 12, when um, Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and He says, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself. Or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And here it is. I mean, I can imagine Peter in prison that night going, all right, well, if we're going to have to count to the synagogue rulers and the authorities, Jesus said the Holy Spirit was going to teach me what to say. And um, and, and Matthew uh, records the same words, but he also says, has Jesus saying, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That surely must have been what it felt like 
uh, for Peter. Um, and again, he uses the same formula. You killed him. And God raised him. And it totally befuddles the Sadducees, who are very educated, uh, very well-versed, very uh, sophisticated, very righteous. Um, and, they, and yet they recognize that Peter and, Jan- Peter and John are just fishermen. Right? They're common, uneducated men, and they hear what they're saying, and they cannot believe the um, wisdom that is coming out. And they say, Acts actually records the side conversation. We, we can see plainly that a miracle has been done. What are we going to do about this? We don't want them to keep preaching the name of Jesus, and, and yet we can't deny it. So that, isn't it interesting that they, what they're saying is we don't want any other lame people healed. That's kind of, I mean, there's, there's a sort of sickness to that, isn't there? I mean, you think, we, because of their position, because of their power, because of their theology even, they don't want any more good deeds done in the name of Jesus. It's kind of, kind of striking. But they don't have anything to say to Him, so they let Him go. And then we're going to look at what happens uh, after that in just a minute. But what we see in this passage, we see the nature of salvation. Uh, we see the nature of persecution. And then what we're going to see after that is the living... Um, Salvation in the face of persecution. So the nature of salvation. Um, it's interesting. He, so he stands up and he ta- speaks to the, to the council, the Sadducees. Verse 9. Well, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, remember this is what Jesus promised, said to them, Rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, and I'll hold on to that word healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the peoples of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. See, there's that pattern. You crucified, God raised from the dead. By Him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That word healed, you're questioning us about the good deed done to a crippled man uh, by what means this man has been healed. And then that word saved, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. It's the same word in Greek. Sozo. means salvation. And it can mean a medical salvation, a medical healing, or it can mean a spiritual salvation. So this is the right translation. But we miss it in English that Peter's saying that the healing of the lame man is actually an incredible picture of what God does to us spiritually, right? That we are, by our own merits, uh, without the ability to walk, spiritually speaking, in and through, uh, uh, except in and through the name of Jesus. It, his, we are crippled. 
We may want to do what's right. Remember Paul says in uh, Romans 7, the, the thing I want to do, I do not do, but the thing I do not want to do, that's what I do. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death. What he's saying is that um, I can see what I want to do, but I, um, I don't have the power to do that in myself. And, and you could imagine for all his days, this, this crippled man, this man who was uh, lame from birth, could not walk. All his days he wanted to get up and walk, but he, could not, he did not have the power. And it was only through the name of Jesus that he was able to get up and walk. Now, this is not a promise that when you're, uh, you know, someone speaks to you and says, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk, that you'll be able to do that. It's not a promise of healing. What it is a promise of spiritual salvation? It's a picture. It's an illustration of what happens for us. And just as the man was overcome with joy and everyone around him came to marvel and celebrate, so is our salvation a cause for celebration. I mean, every week when we come together, we should be celebrating, right? That's, our, that's what we're coming to do in our uh, worship, in our Bible study, is to celebrate what God has done. That He has told us to get up and walk. I'm, mm, I'm tempted to tell a story. I'm going to save it for the sermon next week. So you'll have to come to church next week. Stay tuned. See if you can spot it. We'll talk about it a little bit maybe in the rector's forum. But um, do we lose that, church? Do we, do we lose that celebration? Does, does your walk with Christ kind of become routine and just another part of your day in and day out? Or is that just me? Yeah. So Joyce said every now and then we need a shot in the arm. We need a reminder. We need a, a boost. A Curcio was that for you last year. That was great. I think it's almost like every part of your life becomes you know, your job and your social life and everything. And even, you know, people that you're friends with, and sometimes you just have to on the spur of the moment say, oh, let's go for coffee or something just to kind of like you know, get rid of the boredom for the week. I think we get too comfortable sometimes with things, and it's good to feel comfortable, but like all of us, we got to kind of go outside the box sometimes, like you say, to get re-energized. You know, one of the things that Trent says in his sermon is that it is hope is born out of discontent. And, and in that sense where we realize hope, we actually the discontent becomes, in retrospect, a blessing, right? So that's kind of what you're saying. I appreciate that. That's good. Katie, what were you going to say? Yes. And I think that's why a lot of us look so forward to worship on Sunday. Because it's a chance to leave everything else behind and get to the real meaning of being with God. Yes. We were made to worship God. And so we look forward to that on Sundays to get to that, where to leave everything else. I love that. Yeah, you know, but but isn't it? You know, sometimes the alarm goes off. We get dressed. We come. You know, like it's just we forget sometimes, don't we? We forget. Now, listen. I mean, just because I got a collar on my neck doesn't mean I don't forget sometimes too. It's, it's my job to kind of try to make it so that we, um, uh, so that we remember <laughs> in 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 uh, our worship services. In fact, a lot of times you probably hear me uh, in the liturgy uh, inflecting differently 
from one week to the next. That's to keep my attention. I mean, it's not just to make it more meaningful to you, although I hope it does. But it's to, it's to remind me about different things. I might say glory one week, but next week I'll say, I don't know, something else. So, uh, you know, I might just inflect it differently. It's to keep, to remind me to, uh, to be engaged, not just to go through in a rote way. Because that, I mean, our liturgy can, it lends itself to roteness, doesn't it? Anybody else ever go, did we say the Nicene Creed this time? Like, well, you said it. You stood up. You actually read the whole thing, said it out loud, but you were making your grocery list uh, in, your, in your mind as you, were, as you were saying it. Right? You were thinking about, gosh, Monday morning I've got a staff meeting. And, uh, you know, whatever it is. Because the liturgy does that because we just do it all the time. It takes, it takes a, a, a decided, disciplined um, concentration. I used to... So early on, I grew up Episcopalian, as, as many of you know, and, and, um, and came to, to faith uh, sort of outside the Episcopal Church, um, although the Episcopal Church has really blessed that. Um, but it was really, that first season, I thought, those prayers don't mean anything. They're not spontaneous. And, and somebody, I think I've said this before, but somebody said to me, um, you, have to, you can't just say the prayers or read the prayers, you have to pray the prayers. Uh, which mean, which meant to me, like I have to, I can say them, I can read them. They don't have to be spontaneous. They're actually born out of incredible wisdom. But it's my responsibility to make those prayers vertical, right? To give myself uh, the the um, experience of worship through the that liturgy. Otherwise, it's just dead, right? It's a skeleton. It's the Holy Spirit that puts flesh on that skeleton. So the nature of salvation is. Uh, pictured in this in this lame man, and that proclamation that we were dead in our transgressions, uh, we were lame in our transgressions, uh, but we have been made alive uh, in Jesus Christ. That actually is at odds with the way of the world, whether it's inside religious institutions or not. I don't know if you feel like you've um, encountered persecution for your faith or not. Probably no one here has encountered physical persecution where you've been jailed or you've been beaten. Maybe some of you have felt a a social persecution where you have been either publicly um, discredited or just socially marginalized uh, for your faith. Probably also there are people here who have not felt any of that really ever. I want to talk a little bit about just sort of the nature of persecution because these Sadducees, they get so upset uh, about it. And I wonder what, what uh, was it that the Sadducees, in your mind, what were the Sadducees trying to protect? What were they afraid of? Why did they come against a good deed like this from your perspective? Their traditions. What do you mean? Well, when you're set in your ways, when you're set in your ways, you do the same thing. That's 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 your world. And when you become kind of the king of that, when you see a threat that changes that, you're not in command anymore. You're not in charge of it anymore. They're trying to change what you've done, change your traditions. Those when, when people feel threatened, they have a tendency to act irrationally. So there's a loss of control, which which leads us to act irrationally when we okay. That's what I think. All right, no, that's good. What else? I agree the same way. I mean, they were fishermen, and here they are, they're prophets and high up, and they can't perform those miracles like that. 
you know, and that's probably what they were thinking. Well, don't do any more because everybody will notice that we can't do them. Yeah. You know, and we're not in charge, and eventually people are going to figure that out. Yeah, we're going to. That they're going to start following more Jesus and not listen to us. Okay. I think, like you said, you get scared. You know, okay, so there's like, fear. Yeah, it's like fear loss. Of yeah. Company and some little guy down at the computer has this wonderful idea and it blossoms into something, and you're thinking, well, gee, I'm up here and I'm so smart. But that's how you know you're supposed to pull that in and use your team, work as a team, and then you won't feel that way. But see, they weren't. They were just protecting what they had. Yeah. And they didn't want anybody messing it up and realizing that they didn't have the power of Jesus. Yeah. Josh, you were gonna say something? Same thing. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, the power outside their own power. That they that's right. So it, think about what, were, what was that, Ellen? Their pocketbook. Well, their pocketbook, yeah. Well, why are they going to give money? Yeah, if they, if they, they're going to start following these guys and, and give money to their cause, not, not to our cause. You just always follow the money, right? Follow the money. Well, it's human nature, too, to drag your feet when change is pushing forward. Except in the church, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the. Um, the thing about persecution is that is what happens is the message of the gospel conflicts with the way that you are living or viewing uh, the world, and that's the whole nature. I don't like it. You can you don't it doesn't have to be religious persecution. It'd be political persecution, social persecution. When something uh, that and, and maybe you've been a recipient of persecution, maybe you've been a giver of persecution. When something comes against the way that you're living the world, seeing the world. Um, against your worldview, that gets under your skin. That's a challenge to you. Um, and and that's, the Sadducees saw this as a challenge. There's salvation in no other name except Jesus. Wait a second. Salvation comes by following the law. And if you're saying that, that, um, that now they just, just all you got to do is believe in Jesus, they're going to go off and be nuts. And, and that's, I mean, that totally undermines. They would have seen this as incredibly blasphemous. So I don't think they were just power and they probably were power hungry, but I don't think they were just power hungry. I think they saw they were they were entrenched in their traditions and could not see this as a fulfillment of their traditions. They saw it as as uh, yeah. But let's so for one one time I went um, I can just remember this is really uh, interesting. We um, thing happened when I was in my church before seminary. We had this ministry called Two by Two. And we went out, and we just wanted to tell people in the neighborhood we were there. Hey, if you're ever looking for a church, we're right up here. We'd love for you to join us sometime. That was really the whole message. And we went out two by two and, and said that. Was, I remember this one guy, he started just yelling at us. Like we didn't say, hey, good morning. We're from the church of uh, the Holy Cross. And they just, he just started, went off. It had nothing to do with church of the Holy Cross. He was just, he was just angry. He didn't want to hear anything about Christianity. Because he was... If you if you were to now sit down, put him on the on the psychiatrist chair, and um, and ask him about that, it's because he knew that Christianity was totally antithetical to his worldview. Now he might have, you know, had thought that there's no way a dead man can rise from the um, dead or anything, something like that. But that's the nature of persecution. It undermines power, and, and, and in fact, it calls all power to lie down before it, and power is not going to lie down. Right? That's the nature of power. Psalm 118 is a wonderful psalm. And this um, verse 22 is, is um, used throughout the New Testament. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You've heard this verse before. Um, it's used, it, Jesus uses it. Peter uses it in his letter in 1 Peter. 
But Peter uses it here. But here, Peter actually changes it a little bit. It doesn't say the stone that the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. He says the stone that you builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Now Psalm 118 is all about the unexpected reversal of power. And you think about a lot of the Psalms are, are about this theme, right? A lot of the Psalms have to, have to do with um, Israel or an individual, a king or something, maybe it's David. He's down and out. Things are looking bad. God lifts him up. And that's what the theme of Psalm 118 is. And probably Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It was a proverb of that day. And so the psalmist is saying that proverb about the stone the builders have rejected has become the, the cornerstone, the primary, the foundation stone. Um, that, that, fit, that proverb fits in this scenario. And so, interestingly, the verb for rejected that's used in the Greek version of the Psalms and that used in Matthew and, um, and Luke and then also in Peter's letter, it means, rejected means, we, we looked at it, it was of poor quality. The stone was, you know, it was, it was um, we needed granite, but it was slate or something like that. You know, it's, it was unfit. And so it was rejected. Rejected is unfit. But here, Peter you, switches the word. He doesn't use the same word for rejected. Um, he uses a different word. We miss this in English. It sounds like it's the same word. And it's a good translation. But what it means is he was uh, rejected with disdain. He was rejected with anger. He was scorned. And he doesn't say the, the builders, but you builders. Because he's speaking to the Sadducees, the council, the ruling elders. So, and, and yet all the Sadducees can do is say, stop it. Stop this proclamation. And Peter, what Peter says is, listen, you've got to decide whether it's right for us to obey you or to obey God. And, and think how bold, think how uh, uh, um, disrespectful in one sense that was for Peter to say to the elders of the church that actually we're not going to obey you, we're going to obey God, even though it's your job to teach us how to obey God. So, and it's just literally uh, the Sadducees have nothing to say. And everyone says, uh, they go off and they're all praising God for what had happened. And this is the, this is the uh, clincher verse, verse 22. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Whoa, that guy's old. Yeah, I think it's because he's saying, I just thought that was, I, 10 years ago that didn't strike me as so funny. But now I see, I see a little, I see what, I, I see. We are, uh, I've spent more time talking about those things than I meant to, but uh, here is, um, here's what I think is remarkable. So they come up against this, this persecution, and it only gets worse from here. Like we see Stephen martyred. We're not going to be able to talk about that. This is what, this, let me read, verse, start with verse 23, what they do, how they respond. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. So spontaneous prayer, right? Spontaneous praise and worship. 
And they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? This is from Psalm number 2. The kings of the earth, the Sadducees in this case, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. And then then they go back to their prayer. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of of your holy servant, Jesus. It is amazing to me that they didn't say, Lord, end this persecution. Look on their threats and and make them stop. Change their hearts, dear Lord. They just said, look on their threats and give us boldness. I think that's pretty remarkable. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Man, I would love for us as a church to offer such prayer that when we say amen, the whole place shakes. I mean, that just just makes me excited. And To think of their boldness. To think of, we're not going to stop talking about Jesus because Jesus is, Jesus is the cure for cancer. We're not going to hide this thing. We've got, we've got what everybody needs. We're not, going to, we're not going to just put it under a bushel. Even if it means we're going to get in trouble. We've got to tell people about this Jesus. So Lord, don't make, the, don't make it easy. Make us bold. I think that's amazing. We need, we're at the time where we need to stop. And I want you to pray about that this week. Not... Not asking you. I mean, I'm not asking you to get fired from work because you go and you know cubicle to cubicle and start telling people about Jesus. Like, what? What does it look? What would boldness look like in your life? You don't have to have an answer to that, but you need to pray about it. And I need to pray about it. What would it look like for this church? What would prayer look like? What would? It, where the first thing that Peter does, he goes back to his friends and they pray together. Is that, our, is that our kind of church? I encourage you to go to the end of chapter 4 and look at the description of the church. We don't have time for it today. Maybe we'll catch up a little bit next week. If we keep catching up from last week, we're never going to get through uh, at Advent 1. But we'll, that will that'll take care of itself. But think about who we are as a church. And say your prayers about boldness. Amen? Amen. Alright, go to church.